0: Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Crystal Spring, Johnsonville Foods, Hypo Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and Pigequipment.com, brought to you by American Resources.
1: Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Roda your host for today's episode. Today, we're joined by Dr. Matt Ackerman. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing well, Matthew.
2: Thank you for the opportunity to join you today.
1: No, opportunity and pleasure is mine. Excited to talk about a lot of things going on in the industry. You are a swine expert that's worked in this industry for quite some time, so I'm excited to get your perspectives on a lot of these topics. To first just start out, I would love it if you could tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and and how you got involved in the swine industry.
2: Yeah, well, thank you, Matthew, for that. Yes, I grew up in central Illinois, Peoria, Bloomington area on a small farm, sharecropping 600 acres, 60 cows, 100 sows, all out in the mud in the 70s and 80s. I spent much of my formative years walking electric fence and feeding sows outside, pulling on the end of a sow's teat to determine when she should be moved into the farrowing house, letting sows out twice a day to let to scrape her pen from the farrowing house, pull together farrowing houses, and then uh, Going on from there. So in 1984, our family sold out of farming. And then I had the privilege of going to work on our neighbor's farm, who was a medical doctor. He had 200 sows in what was called confinement at the time. So these animals were inside when they farrowed. You know, the medical doctor, he could afford to put everything on concrete. So Cargill open front barns. Uh, was where we did our gestation and breeding out there. We actually recorded the mating so that we knew when these animals were being bred, hand mating it was called back in the day. And then we moved those animals into a farrowing house where it was heated. I got to take my coat off when I went inside those barns. Absolutely loved it. They were on slats. We had a cable feeding system, pushed a button and it fed the sows. It was, it was just amazing technology. They had a computer program called Pig Champ that uh, we recorded our information in and uh, we could print sow cards and record information. We had heated nurseries, which uh, pigs did so much better when you Put them in a heated nursery. So, and the finishing barn, it was grow finish. There was a grower end and a finishing end. Once again, uh, augers to feed all those pigs, automatic waters above slats. Uh, partial slats and all that manure went into a um, slurry store. It was called back in the day. International Harvest Store had a slurry store, and then we'd uh, take that manure and apply it back on the field versus how we did things at home. So a lot of technology, a lot of improvements in biosecurity in a short amount of time there. And then in the 90s, I went off to veterinary school, University of Illinois, um, and graduated there in 1995. Had the privilege of working with the swine group there, which really helped open my eyes. When I went off to veterinary school, I wanted to be James Harriet, do all creatures great and small. Um, But as I got working with the swine group, I really learned that that was where my passion was. Um, David Bain headed that group up. Charlie Francisco, Jamie Lehman, Eric Newman, Julie Funk were a few that were there. Uh, Jim Lowe was a year ahead of me in vet school. Bill Hollis, a year behind me in vet school. So, some of the swine folks at at the time. And we were doing pseudorabies eradication um, at large herd pseudorabies eradication projects then. And then, when I graduated, I moved to Greensburg, Indiana, halfway between Indianapolis, Indiana, and Cincinnati, Ohio. Worked there for 20 years with Larry Roof and Dennis Villani in a all swine practice, which uh, really great opportunities, great learning. And then 2016, we started our own business, Pork Veterinary Solutions, um, Innovative Veterinary Solutions, and we've been working there um, ever since.
1: It's pretty cool when you're able to look back on some of those things because in the moment, it's probably really hard to understand where you are, but you were ahead of the times with a lot of the stuff that was going on, and you were surrounded by a lot of individuals who were either at the moment were doing great things for the industry or into the future would also as yourself have done great great things for the
2: industry. So that's pretty cool to see how that, that all changed. It's been a great run, Matthew. You know, like you said, in the time, uh, you know, you're just slugging through it some days, but when you look back on it, it's been, it's been a great run and uh, looking forward to many years yet to come. So when you think about where we are today, can you tell us about what you're seeing regarding advancements in herd health? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the industry today, you know, Back in the day, we were doing Kohler milk vaccine, making that up for people. We'd take their E. coli isolates. We'd grow them up. We'd put it in a, in a milk jug. Well, we'd grow it up on a bacterial plate. Then we'd put it in a milk jug. We'd grow that up overnight. We'd take that out to customers. They'd come in and pick that up, you know, in the eighties and then feed the sows. That did an amazing job of stopping E. coli. Uh, Once again, the other technologies that I mentioned, bringing animals indoors, raising them in the right temperature, getting them away from their manure. I mean, that was huge stuff. But if you look at since I've graduated, I mean the vaccine technology of pseudorabies vaccine. I, you know, a lot of younger folks haven't had that opportunity, but that that vaccine technology, uh, DIVA technology, that allowed it to be a marker vaccine and allowed us to vaccinate animals and know which ones were vaccinated versus which ones were wild type infection. Huge, huge technology breakthrough that allowed us to uh, eradicate that disease. Um, diagnostic lab turnaround time with PCR testing. Huge, huge deal um, that we just kind of take for granted right now. Oral fluids, ease of sample collections, whether that's oral fluids, processing fluids, tongue tip collection, the fact that our production guys can collect samples, submit them to the laboratory with us in the loop, um, getting those results back electronically electronic web submission id so that that's all linked and getting pushed back out to our email account i mean back in the day matthew we'd take diagnostics we'd go out gather them ship them off to the lab i mean two weeks later we'd get a report back that you know it'd come across on the fax machine on friday night at five o'clock you know and you'd see it on um, monday morning when you got back into the office it, you know the kind of technology that we've got that allows for real-time information systems. Um, you know the vaccine technology where we can do mRNA vaccine. I really appreciate um, National Hog Farmer and uh, standing up for that technology and you know making sure people are aware there's some negative uh, implications around that technology because of the COVID experience. But the reality is it's great technology. And we need to, we need to embrace that moving forward. Um, U.S. ship and having working as an industry to have a codified swine health monitoring system where we can potentially even go after endemic diseases. I mean, those are huge advancements that we're all working together to make sure that uh, our producers benefit from.
1: So can you talk a little bit about your personal views on the trends of the industry and I guess a hot take or what's your soapbox topic when you think about what's happening in the industry today?
2: Well, in the industry today, I mean, we still have a lot of health challenges in the industry today. You know, whether that's PERS, whether that's PED, you know, I want to make sure that we do what we can to help our producers keep their herds healthy so that they can maximize productivity. So, it was interesting you brought
1: up the mRNA thing because, yeah, we think what Harris Vaccines had that
2: in our industry for, shoot, six years before? Well, we had it with PED, right? So, we're coming up on our... Our 10-year anniversary of PED—it's 2023, 2013, May of 2013, April of 2013—is when we really identified that and, and addressed it. So, and Harris Technology was out in the next year, 2014, um, we were using some of that technology. So, yeah, it's—it's it's been nine years that we've had that technology.
1: Yeah, that was kind of—it was kind of neat knowing that we had that technology, and that when we COVID rolled around, and we were talking about coronavirus, and it was just—I was like, oh, okay, I, I know—I know what's going on here because of everything that Harris. Said done but when you think about that's my next, quest, next question cutting corners versus cutting costs how that affects piglet
2: viability and sow health well you know if you look at the biggest threat to today's swine industry i would say that it's it's the economics of the u.s swine market and i appreciate you acknowledging that in your last podcast with joe kearns and Billy even last month um so whenever those there's, uh, there's those economic pressures um uh, the Bible tells us that where there is no vision, the people perish, and I say your budget limits your vision, so you know a lot of times right now we're under this economic crunch where our vision is being limited by our budget, so people are trying to save costs, we're under labor pressures um that have negative impacts on doing what's right. you know at the end of the day we sometimes we know what's right. Um, you know every day when i get out of bed i intend to do what's right and then things usually go poorly somewhere along the way right so every day we just have to realign and say okay what are we trying to accomplish what are we going to get done today um and how are we going to do it and make sure that it's done correctly so anything we can do to keep disease out of an operation will minimize the losses Um, that a producer experiences.
1: So given that this is a tough time, can you talk about some of the things that producers are doing to address cost versus um, efficacy issues?
2: What I see people doing is across the board, there's different Techniques, right-sizing the U.S. swine herd is is things that are going on. Any non-productive sows or questionable sows are being culled or minimized from a herd. Any less viable pigs are being eliminated faster in an operation to uh, minimize the shed and spread of diseases to a, a farm. People are working very diligently to make sure that biosecurity practices are being followed. So, I mean, you can see that from our overall pers. Right now in the U.S. swine industry, Shimp, I really appreciate the way they report that out, we're somewhere around 16% of the herds reporting on their system have been infected thus far this year, July of last year till June of this year. So uh, versus 25% last year and 25 kind of the average year. And once again, those are people that are reporting. It's obviously PERS is in a much higher incident across the industry than that. But, you know, just using that as a, a microcosm of the improvements or the focus on biosecurity in our industry i think that's one example
1: so talking about pers we've talked about pedv they seem to be the most prevalent threats to producers at least domestically and and that we've we've had experience with how is the industry addressing that and how are industry leaders playing a role
2: well i think that industry leaders are continue to bring up the topic of what can we do to minimize the shed and spread of PERS or PED, what techniques are effective, you know, what can be done to eliminate disease. The Iowa Swine Disease Conference is coming up at the end of next month. And once again, you know, PERS is a hot topic on that U.S. ship is working on things to try and standardize our production practices and health practices to minimize disease shed and spread. Producers are working within their organization to streamline production and flows to protect themselves. People are looking at technology such as filtering, anything we can do from a mitigant standpoint, you know, to find whatever uh, tools we can that can cost effectively be implemented to minimize a disease spread in an organization or things that people are looking into.
1: So, to kind of take a pause here for a second uh, for some some other questions, when I guess you think about your biggest concern for the industry. What comes to mind Uh, of all the things you got profitability, you've got labor, got
2: disease. What scares you the most? Hmm, That's a great question. Well, in times like these, you know, mental health and and giving people hope, making sure that people have hope. I'm very risk adverse. So I'm always seeing the negatives. I'm always seeing the challenges when I'm on a farm. You know, when something goes on, alarm bells are going off in my head when the producer's going, ah, that's not that big a deal. So I want to make sure that number one, I'm uh, leaving people with hope and we come up with some practical ideas and hopefully we'll share some of those as we continue to talk.
1: That's great. No, I I'd be with you. It's, uh, that mindset that we're going to get through this, it's going to be okay. It's a good answer. So a couple of questions I like to ask, uh, I imagine the first one's going to be an easy one. She said, said where you went, but what is a D
2: one college that you root for? Well, I went to the University of Illinois and I continue to root for them because my kids all have gone to Purdue. So it's uh, <laughs> it stirs the pot at our house when I continue to root for Illinois, pick them to win all the uh, tournaments regardless of their standing because I just don't want to be not have picked them when the year when they make it to the championship. <laughs> what about a go-to
1: karaoke song? <laughs> um Stand by Me. Nice. What about an actor or actress? that you really, really like, or you just can't stand?
2: Jason Bourne. I always loved the Jason Bourne, uh, you know, action, not a lot of talk. Um, when you're just looking for something mindless to watch when you're on the treadmill, I think of Matt Damon and Matthew Bourne, or what about Jason your Bourne? Food? Sorry.
1: Yeah, you're good. What about my favorite food? Um, Bacon. I
2: mean, bacon. It's, it's all about the pork products, right? Yeah. You know, whether it's a pork chop, whether that's bacon, Bacon, the candy of the meat industry. You you, you wrap a steak in it; it, steak, it tastes better. You can even eat chicken if you wrap it in bacon. I mean, it's bacon <laughs> hands down. Uh, you can you can even eat a salad if you put enough bacon on it.
1: You mean if you wrap chicken in bacon, it makes it you can eat it then?
2: Yes, it, it you know gives it some taste, gives it some flavor. No, nothing <laughs> to get. I'm an equal opportunity carnivore. I just have to pick on my friends in the poultry industry.
1: Yeah, no, I thought that was funny. What about your go-to beer?
2: I'm not much into beer. I would rather I have a glass of wine. What, uh, what's your go-to wine? Uh, probably a Pinot Grigio. Okay. What is the top
1: of your bucket list for travel?
2: Well, we're heading to Alaska as family. Ooh. That's going to be our 50th state. So we've been, my wife planned this out and um, we're hitting number 50 heading to Alaska. And then the one I haven't asked before, but if you had
1: unlimited funds and you could have someone in the industry go do research. What is that research?
2: Well, I'm all about data, uh, doing stuff with Power BI and chat GDP, embracing those technologies and pooling large data sets together. I think that we're going to be able to do pattern recognition, utilizing technology that helps us figure out Uh, some of these situations, you know, disease investigations are a special passion of mine right now, disease investigations and figuring out what's going wrong. A lot of times, you know, we can't really seem to find that silver bullet and, or we throw up our hands. But I think that if we captured all the mistakes that we made and figured out the pattern of what went wrong to have those, we would, we would have better focus in the industry and uh, better activities. So that's, If, yeah, if I had the funds, that's where I'd focus it. It's going to be cool. Sooner or later, we're going to get there and it's going to be pretty awesome.
1: Yes, it is. So to kind of get back to health in the industry, when it comes to feed, how much has been speculated about the risks involved in the supply chain? Like, what is your understanding of the steps along the feed supply chain to control viral risk and exposure?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, when it comes to biosecurity, number one, you ask is what are the steps in the chain? And number two, uh you know, what can we do about it to minimize viral exposure or a pathogen exposure, not just viruses, uh, you know, salmonella, E. coli, you know, bacteria as well, uh, mycotoxins, uh, you know, any foreign material that shows up in the feed, uh, there's a lot of opportunities there. And so, you know, that's what I really try and work with my clients on is identifying the areas of risk, identifying the process uh, identifying the areas of risk and then figuring out what we can do to mitigate those risk.
1: So then can you walk through that supply chain then and the steps along the way and what you're seeing as some of the opportunities?
2: Yeah, so if you look at risk events in general. So, you know, you had Daryl Holtkamp on here uh, last year in November, yes. I believe, to talk about biosecurity. And I just always enjoyed Daryl uh information that he shares. And, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and acknowledge several people that helped me uh, pull together this information and guide me. You know, I i have interviewed Scott D, uh, Daryl Holcamp, Mike Tokash, uh, Joel Spencer, Ethan Stevenson, Aaron Gaines, uh, Brent Ratliff, uh, Joe Crenshaw are just a few of the people that have helped me better understand this whole area of feed because you know I'm a veterinarian. And despite the fact that you know I sometimes behave otherwise, I know I'm not a nutritionist. Um, I am a veterinarian. And so I really rely on these people with expertise in the feed area to help me um, understand the supply chain. And if you just break it down in the way the process goes, you've got ingredients that get delivered To a plant, a feed mill, and then oftentimes get re-delivered or blended or mixed and delivered to my clients and then get uh, blended or re-delivered there out to the barn. So then if you look at those steps and say what can be done or what uh, areas of opportunity are there, um, you just you need to break it down from there. And I, I really like the way Daryl Holkamp did this with overall biosecurity, where he said, hey, there's eight areas of of opportunity. That's swine movement, people movement, vehicles and delivery, other animals such as cats or rodents or any uh, birds that get on a farm. You look at manure r- removal, you look at pork food product entry, you look at air entry, you look at water entry. Those are all risk events or entry events that go on within an operation. Well, if you look at a feed mill and say, well, what are those same entry or risk events? Well, once again, you don't necessarily have swine movements, but interestingly enough on some of my farms, pigs go right by the feed mill uh, one way or the other. Sometimes pigs get weighed on the scale that the grain gets weighed on. So, I mean, there's pretty close contact with pigs and the feed mill. And, you know, some people say, well, those those are small farms or those are, you know, family farms or it it really doesn't matter what size you are. It's uh, like one of my clients said, he'd grown quite a bit. His operation had grown quite a bit. And I asked him how big he was and how, how big is your operation? He said, well, we're big enough now that there's something going wrong somewhere all the time. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, you know, the larger the operation gets, it, it's not what you know that's going on; it's what you don't know or aren't aware of that that can catch you. So, you know, whether it's a small farm or a large farm, there's swine movements that go on. There's contact with pigs that go goes on, and those people can sometimes walk in and out of the feed mill, um, can walk in and out of the supply. I I go to farms and. You know, the one place that's wide open, you know, everything's kind of closed office. You have to go in, you have to sign in, you have to wait in the front lobby to be at, allowed into the office. They'll have booties for you to put on the feed mill. It's wide open in, in a lot of places. People can just drive into the farm. Uh, they'll drive in and they'll, the first person they see is the guy at the feed mill. So they'll drive their truck into the feed mill you know, we just have to make sure that signage is there and that people know what they should do and where they should go and where they can't go. Um, You know, people get out of their truck when dropping off grain and they'll walk all through the mill or, you know, once again, other mills, I've gone through some very pristine mills where there's not even any dust around. So, the, the variance between what you see in the industry at farm-based feed mills or production-based feed mills is there's quite a bit of variation, quite a bit of opportunity, I should say. Same with you look at vehicle deliveries, animals that go in and out. I mean, I've been to places where there's rodents and there's birds, and I've been to other places where it's it's pristine. Um, manure removal, well, you're know, like, well, manure removal, what what's that have to do with the feed mill? Well, I've been places where the feed, where the manure equipment drives right down, right in front of the feed mill and Feed trucks are driving through manure that's dripping out of the back of the machine. So, you know, Mm -hmm. is that happening in your organization? Is the feed truck crossing over on the road Uh, manure that's out there that somehow got out there? Um, Once again, area of opportunity, pork, pork and food products. Well, what is the guy at the mill eating? And where is that food going? Mm -hmm. Is that food staying in the mill? Is it ending up in the feed? You know, I go out to farms and do training all the time with people and say, Hey, you know, don't feed the pigs your lunch. Nope, nope, no one does that. And I'm like, okay, no one here has ever shared a snack with the pig. Who on the farm has a favorite pig? Have you ever given it a snack? Maybe <laughs> an Oreo, a, a Jolly Rancher. You know, and then the eyes look down across the room, and it's like, okay, we, we need to not do that, guys. Our food needs to stay in the office. They they have their food. If we want, you know. So, you know, it's just examples of things that can go on, go wrong. If you look at ASF, your our biggest risk are some meat product somehow ending up in a pig from some other country or um, wild animal hunting. You know, those are the things that have have brought ASF to other countries. Feed ingredients, contaminated feed ingredients like soy products, organic soybean meal coming in from XYZ ASF country. It's, uh, you know, interesting that we any country that that you, you're not going to raise or uh, there's no organic soybean meal other than countries that have ASF uh, in any size or quantity. So it really makes you wonder, uh, are they really organic? But nonetheless, that's how they get branded and get brought into this country. And while we have good documentation of how they get here, once they get here, we don't have good documentation of where they go from there. And then water entry, waterfowl, birds, um, marketer waterfowl, you know, uh, a few years ago, and well, and this still goes on today, right? You'd go by and you'd see big grain piles of corn out on the ground, ground uh, stored, ground storage, or uh, some of it would be covered. Some of it wouldn't be covered. Even if it was covered, it wasn't covered all the time. Migratory waterfowl, I, we know they carry um, avian flu, for instance, and we know that you know pigs are affected by flu as well. Um, PED, Delta coronavirus, TGE, uh, swine dysentery, all things that could contaminate those feed sources and, and infect pigs. So, you know, we just need to make sure that we look at each of those categories of risk on our farm and, and see what we can do to mitigate those.
1: It's funny you brought up the Oreo. I had a farm that I was talking to where they were feeding the, the boars Oreos. And one day they gave the director of production a call and said, Hey, we need you to go get some Oreos. He's like, why? They said, we can't get the boars to breed. (laughs) They had run out of Oreos and they lost the incentive that they were given the boars. So the boar would just sit there until he got his Oreo. And that's when that system decided we are no longer feeding boars. (laughs) Yeah, We can't be subject to a
2: boar snack and whether or not we're going to get stuff done. Uh, Yeah. I appreciate you bringing that up at the end of the day. You know, I want to make sure that the things we say here on this podcast are practical. And, and those are the things that we see all the time, Matthew, I I don't have anything against Oreos or Nabisco or anybody, you know, if, if, and if I don't have a problem with that in your production system, if you want to do that, just make sure that that's, what's written down, that you're all aware of it and that you all agree that that that's a safe thing to do, you know, obviously we all know that uh, pork products, meat products should not be fed to those animals, you know, can Oreos be sterilized and be safe? Yeah. You yeah, know, once again, not trying to pick on one product, but just is that your protocol? Is that your procedure? Is that your SOP? Are you doing what you say you're doing when you go to the barn? Yeah.
1: Cause it's those things that are happening that you have no clue are happening that'll bite you, right? Even, even, even the processes we have, if not followed, will bite you, but at least you know it's an expected process. If it's just something random that, you're going to have to randomly catch some time. It it just makes it hard to solve problems when something hits the fan.
2: Well, exactly. And I try and catch people doing things right and let them know about it. But occasionally we catch people doing things wrong with with the best intentions. You know, during PED, I had the opportunity to go out to farms and visit with them. One thing that went on, um, uh, feed truck drivers delivering uh, bagged feed. You know we have a protocol. we'd sit in the office, we'd talk through it we'd yep, we put on booties, yep we as we get into the truck out of the truck as we get into the back of the truck, we put on booties, we're delivering the feed to the off-site storage room, yep, 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 and then we're um you know wheeling it to the back of the truck and they're offloading the feed bags from there into the barn. well. That That's all fine when you're sitting in a meeting room. But when you go out to the farm and I'm sitting at the farm and the feed truck drives in to the farm out at the finishing site, nursery finishing site, and the feed truck driver gets out of the truck and goes in to the truck, backs it up to the feed, the end of the barn, the dock, and starts rolling the bags of feed off into the barn and dropping them off inside the barn, rolling back onto the cart. Mm -hmm. And I say to the producer, "What what are they doing there? And he goes, Well, they're delivering feed. And I said, Yeah, but they're breaching your biosecurity protocols. He goes, Well, they have booties on. And I'm (laughs) like, Well, yes, they do have booties on, you know, and, but he's not supposed to be doing that. Well, we're short on labor. So he's helping me out. Well, he's not really helping you out. He's cross contaminating your site with with PED um, by rolling in and out of your barn. And if he's doing that here, where did he stop before this site? Once again, you know, they had both agreed on it, but they didn't really understand the relative risk and it wasn't what we had agreed to at the home office. Yeah.
1: So I guess on that note, what about the risks of treatment of ingredients at the production site? I mean, you've got a lot of things going on around what's coming in and out at the production site. Can you expand on that a bit more?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, what, what we've got going on is these ingredients that are coming on. Number one, hopefully we're working with with suppliers. And, you know, as as you know, I, I consult with and work with a bunch of different companies. And so a couple of different references I'd like to point out to you um, is, you know, I mentioned the people that I worked with, some references, the Kansas State University uh, website is phenomenal. If you just uh, go out and Google um, KSU um feed biosecurity they've got over 100 different articles out there that you can pull up and get some real practical expertise and and the three that i'll reference uh right off are: there's one that's feed safety basics for the veterinarian feed mill biosecurity for feed mill managers and feed biosecurity for swine producers they're each four pages um very easy read uh well laid out that just um Explain this very well about feed ingredients and things that you can do to improve your biosecurity. So, if you don't get anything out of today's webinar, I hope you at least Google that site and pull up that information. Review it with your team. I think there's some great learnings there. There's actually, um, like I said, there's a hundred articles there. Well, a couple of which are different examples of biosecurity audits that you can go take back home. Because one of the things I really encourage my producers to do is to Audit their procedures. And, you know, it's a lot of people are like, well, you know, that's a pretty convoluted thing to do. (laughs) But, but really, if you have their, their two page checklist, it's pretty straightforward. And the reality is it's just a guide to go out and have good conversations with your team because most of the time your team wants to do what's right. It's just that they, they don't always know. So if you look at um, the lack of awareness, um, you know, Scott Deed uh, said again the other day, uh, the risk is real of feed potentially getting contaminated, and so any of the processes, the steps along the way that we've already talked about, those things are real. So what can we do? What is the practical application to make sure that the ingredients don't get contaminated and that those contaminated ingredients don't get delivered to the farm? One of the things that's the most eye-opening is when you go to a feed mill and truck after truck runs in, drives over this feed mill dump and dumps their their ingredients, the the pit is open uh, most of the time on these uh, mills. So whatever's on those truck tires, whatever's on those machines, snow, dirt, otherwise um, can fall off in those in those pits. So you know if we could close those dumps and and minimize uh, foreign material going in those, that would be outstanding. Um, sometimes in these operations, we're having neighbors come in and deliver corn. That that's great where's the neighbor Ben? What does he raise hogs? Does he, you know, what, what's his biosecurity when he comes in, do they get out of the truck? Uh, you know, one thing if we could do, if we could keep all drivers in the trucks all the time, whether they're hauling pigs or whether they're delivering feed, I, I think that would be great. And, you know, nothing against the drivers. Um, you know, one of my clients, a uh, short story that they got broken into, right. Uh, they, somebody r- broke into their office and robbed them. Right. So anyway, um, anybody who had a key to the office um, w- was on the suspect list because uh, they didn't actually break in. They somehow got into the office, right? So, anybody oh. who had a key was on. I didn't have a key, so I wasn't on the suspect list. What can you do as a truck driver to keep yourself off the suspect list? What can you as a veterinarian do to keep yourself off the suspect list? The other day, I was doing a site audit on uh, a Grow Finish site, and there were some ventilation concerns. And, you know, I went through all my biosecurity coveralls, boots and everything, got back in my truck, drove down the road. And as I was driving down the road, I'm like, you know, what I should have done is walked around the outside of the barn and made sure all the fans were going. So I drove back to the site and I'm like, ah, do I really need to put coveralls and boots and everything back on to walk around the outside of this barn? Well, yeah, I do. I mean, you know, it's just one of those thoughts that goes through your head. What, what shortcut can I take, you know? I just need to see if these fans and walk further away from the barn. No, I just need to put on boots and coveralls and do the job right at the end of the day. So just making sure that people are following biosecurity to keep your feed mill clean. Um, You know, growing up at home on the farm, one thing that we had to do to feed the sows is we had these outdoor bulk bins, right? And we put a five gallon bucket underneath the bin and we would bang on the bin to get the slide open. Cause the slide, a lot of times would get stuck. You know, a slide's just the metal uh, opening there that there'd be handle on the end of it. So you'd yeah. get a hammer, you'd get under there, you'd beat the slide open. Then once you got it open, you started hammering feverishly to get it shut before the five gallon bucket overflowed with feed. Um, <laughs> you know, surely 40 years later in today's industry, we're not banging on feed bins with hammers. Oh, wait, we are. Yeah. Uh, I was gonna, yeah. <laughs> so, Oh, wait, we are. Surely if the feed overflows the five gallon bucket, what'd I do? Well, I scooped it back in the bucket and I fed it to the pigs. Surely if we overflow feed in a bin or at a feed mill, we don't just shovel it back in, feed it to the pigs. 40 years later, we yeah, yeah, we still do. We still do. So those types of things put our industry at risk and, you know, are things that we just need to figure out how to do a better job of, you know, Darrell Holkamp on his biosecurity conversation with you talked about um, engineered solutions, right? Um, What can we do to engineer or take the error rate out of the process? Um, You know, and and of course, once again, a lot of these things get cost prohibitive or um, can't really happen as such. But sometimes I think we just need to look outside of our industry um, and see what solutions can happen. For instance, With PED, I was working with a 200 sow research farm and, you know, they have a couple engineers on their team, right? You know, it's always nice when you go to a 200 sow farm and they're all uh, eight of the employees there um, are uh, college educated and uh, you've got an engineer support team. You've got an IT support team. I mean, it's just that's fancy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So here we are talking about PD and they'd gotten PD in their isolation unit and kept it out of their sow unit, which congratulations to them. Very few people did that. And we're like, Hey, how can we get rid of PED out of that isolation unit? Because, you know, it's in the pit, the pits contaminated, the pit flows into the uh, pond, the, the lagoon, and then gets sprayed back on the field. You know, if we could somehow kill the virus in that barn, that would be ideal, and well, you know, you can't dump enough bleach in there to do that. Well, one of the engineers goes, "Oh, you said all we had to do is heat it up to 160 degrees uh, for 30 minutes, right?" Well, yeah, he goes, "Well, we just use an industrial steam truck and we pump industrial steam into that pit, and we'll kill all the PED in there, <laughs> and then we'll go out to the lagoon and do the same thing." And I'm like. I didn't even know you could do that. Sometimes I think there's solutions that we can do that you know aren't even on our radar. Now, are they cost effective? Maybe not today, but mitigants weren't cost effective a few years ago, and now you know the prices come down quite a bit on those things. So producers are factoring those into their operation, at least seasonally, if you know October to to May or whatever they believe their risk is. I mean, it, it, we're basically buying insurance to try and minimize the challenge, and so. Anything we can do and utilize those technologies, I I think are things that we need to look at and consider, Matthew. Yeah, I think, I'm
1: curious what your thoughts are, but I feel like the greatest enemy to good biosecurity is our industry's, I'll call it necessary, but also culture around efficiency and cost. Mm -hmm. It's like a lot of the things where, like you said, do I really have to, are we cutting corners to go faster? Are we scooping a shovel of feed into a bucket to save money? Uh, it's those efficiencies and cost almost go in direct contradiction to good biosecurity practices. It's yeah, tough. Sir. It's kind of a, yeah. Curious well, what your thoughts are.
2: You know, I I, th- I think you're right. I mean, it comes down to cost, right? So I just encourage my producers to say, Hey, what's the cost of disease? So, you know, and then try and box in, we don't, we don't always know what the right answer is. So Pete you know, you hear the six dollars a pig, right? So six dollars a pig. Well, what can we do for six dollars a pig? Well, this mitigant X Y Z. You know, I don't care what mitigant you choose. If it's five dollars a ton or ten dollars a ton, how much does that cost? Five dollars. Let's say it's five dollars a ton. Just for quick math, five divided by two thousand. Say the average pig eats. 680 pounds, that's a dollar seventy a pig. That mitigant would cost you if you fed it all the time. Now, if you fed it half the time, because you know we're always trying to half dose or halfway do it and see if we get the same results. If we do it half the year, then it's 85 cents a pig. Well, I mean, if that mitigant's 100 percent effective and it's cost us 85 cents and it gets us six dollars of return, that that's a pretty good deal. Now, if we say, well, it's only half effective, then all of a sudden you just say, Well, that mitigant divide by f- point 0.5. Okay. It's really costing us an effective cost of $1.70. Um, you know, if you say, well, it's really $10 a ton. Okay. It's twice that. So once again, $1.70 times two, we're talking $3.40. If that $3.40 got a $6 back of protection, it would be worth it. And so we just, we try and look at each of our interventions or take those costs and take them up up against the cost of PERS or the the cost of flu or the cost of PED and what we think our that cost is to our operation based on our risk and uh and and decide if if those are pieces of insurance that we're willing to invest in. Fair. So lastly here, you toured a facility that
1: produces spray-dried plasma uh that's seemed to be kind of divided around small experts to the efficacy and the risk around that can you tell us about your experience at that facility and just what you saw and yeah. everything that went on there.
2: Yeah, as as you know, I mean I I do consulting for different companies. Uh, I'm on the advisory board for APC. So, I mentioned that because I just think I want to be intellectually honest with with people when I share information and experiences. You know, I work with feed companies, I work with production companies, I work with genetics companies, but uh, the reason I mentioned this is cuz APC Regardless of who you use, I would challenge you to go out to and Google APC biosecurity fact book and pull that up because there's a two-page document, well, it's three pages altogether, but the two pages that I think are really informative on there is biosafety and handling procedures for plasma. And you can cross out plasma and put whatever your ingredients are and just use this as a checklist. Number one, what's your employee and visitor controls? They've got their steps spelled out. Number two, what's their raw material handling handling procedures? And it's all spelled out. What's your raw material processing? It's all spelled out. What's your production monitoring? All spelled out. Unprocessed and dry separation, drying procedures, maintenance controls, finished product storage, outbound finished material pickup. They've got nine steps. They've got them all spelled out. And we went and audited the mill and walked through and said, hey, are you doing what you say you're doing? And then on the backside of that, they've got the 14 steps with pictures that, The process goes through, and so once again, they've got it all documented out. Um, So whether it's whether it's plasma or from APC or whether it's whatever your ingredient supplier is, whether it's your own feed mill, um, they've got maps of here's the inbound route, here's where the swine plasma goes, here's what process. I mean, it's it's all documented. So you know whatever you can do, however you can document that, and then make sure that your people are adhering to it, and then. I've never been in a cleaner ingredient uh, facility. You know, there's no dust, no dirt, no uh, you know, you're putting on boots, you're putting on protective equipment, you're putting on uh, hats, you're putting on, you know, the whole process you're signing in, you're logging in, you know, the whole thing is, is documented. So I just challenge anyone in any feed ingredient or feed supplier to take a look at that and make sure they're covered. Yeah. It's not cheap to be that good either. Like that's a, that's a decision. That is an intentional decision to be that clean. Right. Right. And, you know, it's, it's a daily commitment. So, you know, I, I go to farms and they know I'm coming and, you know, things aren't clean. You know, I you know, some people always say, well, you know, they just cleaned it up because you're coming good. That That shows they, they cared whether that's the farm or whether the plant, you know, I, I don't really do surprise visits. I just, I I find enough opportunity in most places when I tell them I'm coming. So I, you know, I want them to be aware and and then challenge them to once again document what they're doing and and do what they say they're doing. So to wrap things up,
1: I always like to ask for a golden nugget, a bit of wisdom from your life that you've I guess picked up and want to share with others. What is a golden nugget that you might have for our listeners?
2: Well, I just. Think it's important to treat others as you want to be treated. Um, remember that in any of these investigations, um, people care. They, you know, they want to do what's right. They are trying to do what's right. If we can help them, and well, and if you find someone that doesn't have the desire to do what's right and to be want to be part of the team, then help help them find another opportunity. Well, thank you, Matt,
1: for being a guest on the Popular Pig Podcast. Really appreciate the insight, the depth. And the
2: transparency today. Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.